Hey y'all, welcome to Truth's Table, Midwives of Culture for Grace and Truth. I'm McKemini. I'm Michelle. And this table is built by Black women and for Black women. And so welcome to the table, Michelle. How hey, you doing, girl? Good, good. Good to be back. <laughs> Hit us with the well, girl. You know they want to hear that. <laughs> well, well, well. well. Well, you guys know we do have one member missing from the table, and that is Christina. She is braving the frozen tundra of Michigan right now. <laughs> uh, so please send prayers of warmth um, <laughs> to her. Please, please, please. Uh, and yes, please, Lord, keep our sister warm and safe. Mm. And not just her, everybody else, too, who is suffering under this freezing temperatures and conditions. Uh, but we are so excited to continue our Reparations Now series. And we have the honor of having uh, Dr. Anna Lucia Arujo here at the table with us. Hello, Anna. How are you? Hello. How are you? Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming to sit at the table with little old us. That's so, <laughs> right. so honored. We are honored. Well, y'all, why don't I tell you a little bit more about um, Dr. Arujo's work and we will jump right into it because we are passionate about this subject. <laughs> so uh, now Dr. Anna Lucia Arujo is a cultural and social historian. Her work explores the history and the memory of the Atlantic slave trade and slavery and their social and cultural legacies. Now, in the last 15 years, she authored and edited over 10 books on these themes. Her new book, Reparation for Reparations for Slavery and the Slave Trade, A Transnational and Comparative History, was published by Bloomsbury in the fall of 2017. Go get the book, y'all. <laughs> Currently... <laughs> Currently, Anna is a full professor in the Department of History in the historically Black University of Howard University in Washington, D.C. And in 2017, she was nominated as member of the International Scientific Community of the UNESCO Slave Route Project. So welcome to the table, Anna. We are so happy to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for taking the time uh, out of your busy schedule uh, to be with us. And we are sending prayers of warmth to you, too, there in D.C. <laughs> so, thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. So, so you know, I think the best way for us to start is because you're actually the first historian that's been at our table. God willing, you won't be the mm -hmm. last. Um, we want to ask you, can you talk to us about your role as a historian? Yes, and um, my role as historian, we historians, what we do is that uh, we study the past uh, to understand better the present and perhaps make better choices mm -hmm. uh, in the future. And of course, uh, we work uh, with evidence, uh, evidence that can be written evidence, that can be uh, uh, oral histories or uh, other kinds of evidences that uh, is, for example, images. Um, but uh, the idea is that uh, you are, we try to reconstruct the past, uh, to interpret the past, and uh, to, to try to, to see how uh, this past impacts the, the present. Then uh, what we do uh, essentially is, uh, as historians, we, we write. Uh, we develop arguments, arguments based on evidence. Then uh, our evidence usually comes from from the archives. But uh, in many cases, uh, we have today historians working uh, with various kinds of sources that can be, for example, 
sources that are closer perhaps to the present. In the case of my own work, I study memory. Then I am interested in seeing how uh, in the present uh, groups of people, they appropriate elements of the past to bring these elements uh, of the past in the present, especially because uh, in the present they remain excluded, they remain marginalized. And this is why I study slavery and the memory of slavery, because uh, this is an institution that existed uh, all over the Americas. Uh, right. I am a Brazilian of origin. I was born and raised in Brazil. Brazil is the country that is the okay. largest, uh, uh, the country that imported the largest number of the slaves uh, during the period of the Atlantic slave trade. Um, then, the, then these enslaved Africans, the majority of that were taken from Africa, they came to Brazil. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a legacy that remains very, very present in Brazil. Then this is about the past because it's an institution that uh, is no longer legal, no longer exists as it existed in the past. But the descendants of these uh, uh, enslaved Africans in a country like Brazil, they are still living in uh, in marginalized positions uh, without access uh, to education, without mm-hmm. access to decent conditions of health care and so on. Then uh, my work as a historian uh, at the same time, Time is to look at the past, but also to to try to to use this past to to understand the the present. Thank you so much for yeah. breaking that down. Yeah, because I think people approach history and then they go, historians are so pessimistic. Well, I mean, the history <laughs> is bad, y'all. The history is bad. And so, yeah. you, know, you know, so you're picking up. It's hard so, to be optimistic, but yeah. uh, we, we try. <laughs> I know. You guys, y'all try. I have historian friends. You guys try. You know, so so I appreciate you uh, coming with that because I know that our listeners are used to us taking positions, and which obviously we do all the time. And so, uh, but you are a historian, and your job is to analyze and give us the historical facts and receipts, if you will. And so, and you did a marvelous job of doing that in your book. Um, and so uh, while we're in the definition phase, if you will, would you, would you mind, um, can you actually define reparations for us um, so that our listeners are aware of what that is? And then can you talk about the three uh, definitions of repara- reparations or the different types of reparations that you re- reference in your, uh, in your uh, book? You talked about symbolic, financial, and material um, reparations. So if you could talk about just what reparations is and and the three types of reparations, I think that would be helpful for our listeners. Mm-hmm. Then, first of all, reparations—it's—it's uh, uh, it's a term that has been employed, uh, used to to give us this idea of making amends for past wrongs, mm, okay. things that uh, are wrong that were done in the past. And then we have the chance to amend these past wrongs. Mm. Uh, It's a term that became um, employed during the 20th century, Mm -hmm. especially uh, appeared then uh, in international law and in the field of human rights uh, to, to, to convey this idea of redress of physical, material, moral damage, and this either inflicted on one person, one individual, or also a group of individuals, or even a nation. And uh, at that time, uh, in the 20th century, this term became um, uh, employed to, uh, in relation especially to uh, 
to wartime and measures that were associated to indemnify nations for wartime damages. Mm. And usually then these amendments, they contain, they, they have, they carry them to uh, two dimensions. One, there is this dimension that is moral or symbolic. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, usually we are talking about uh, apologies or actions that perhaps um, can help the victims uh, of uh, wrongdoing. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have then the second dimension that uh, carries then either a material or a financial uh, scope. Then uh, we have these three um, these three dimensions, then the symbolic one that can consist only, for example, of an apology, mm -hmm. uh, a, recognition, a recognition that something wrong was done. Uh, sometimes, for example, that it doesn't involve paying money or giving um, material resources to the victims. But then you have the, se uh, the second and the third dimensions that uh, include, for example, the payment uh, of uh, amounts of money or uh, material resources, for example, uh, land, uh, and this kind of thing, then um, what is important, I think, for us to understand is that uh, when we are studying the issue of reparations for slavery, the term reparation is not necessarily present uh, in the, uh, the, the exchanges and even in the writings of these uh, individuals who demanded the reparations. Okay. The term doesn't appear, but we have other terms that are synonyms like uh, redress, amendment, atonement. But starting in the 20th century is the moment when the term reparation will start really appearing uh, much more, uh, much uh, more often. Let's mm. Thank you. And what I was wondering about, um, and especially reading through your book and this vast work, at least to me, I think a lot of younger folks would say that um, there's really been nothing as vast and current except for what everybody points to, which is the Coates article. And even right, Ta-Nehisi right. was like, look, uh -huh. I'm just telling you we need it. I'm not even trying to break down exactly what it is. <laughs> so, um, what are the what are the ways that you have seen the distinctions between symbolic financial and material and the forms of reparations even identified as identified by the UN? They come up mm -hmm. sort of throughout the book and then um, more at the end. But can you describe and expand on those three forms identified mm -hmm. by the special counsel at the UN and then draw whatever distinctions you felt uh, were made at least from what they saw and then from what you've identified? Um, how can I say then? I think that one uh, important element here is uh, perhaps how I arrived uh, study to uh, how I came to study this issue of uh, financial and material reparations because mm -hmm. the book is not about, uh, it's not much about, about symbolic reparations. It's mm -hmm. much more about financial and material. Mm -hmm. um, but then over the last, uh, I would say, 15 years, I, uh, I've been working on this issue of memory of slavery, and especially mm -hmm. on how slavery is either memorialized or erased from the, the public spaces mm -hmm. of former slave societies. And by studying this, there is, of course, all this uh, fight, I would say, of groups that, uh, that want to make uh, visible this slave past uh, in the public space, for example, through the construction of monuments, through the organization of commemoration activities, of festivals, 
um, honoring then uh, enslaved Africans who were killed during the Middle Passage, uh, honoring, for example, those who fought against the slavery, abolitionists, uh, mm -hmm. or other uh, uh, former slaves, for example, like Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, who uh, resisted slavery. And uh, over time, especially after Obama took um, office in 2008, much of these initiatives that perhaps in the past there was much debate, should we put a, a monument to Frederick Douglass? Mm -hmm. Should we not? But over mm -hmm. the last 10 years, there is a growing uh, acceptance uh, that, okay, yes, we have to honor the, these ancestors. You have to build the memorials. Here in DC now we have uh, not a museum of slavery, but you have the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. Mm -hmm. Then yeah. this memory became much more, um, uh, not only public, but it became official. And all this is largely accepted now by everybody. Mm -hmm. Then sometimes we have some debate, some uh, controversy, but usually it is accepted. Mm -hmm. The problem is that Every time that we talk um, about one step more, then more than a statue, more than just change mm. a name of a building that carries the name of a slave owner, then things become controversial. <laughs> and then, yeah. and then uh, I didn't, I was not able to find any uh, works done by historians like retracing the history of these demands of reparations, uh, financial and material reparations. And then you, when I, I, I decided to write the book because uh, I see uh, on the one hand, all this memory of the slavery, all this issue of uh, the, the slave past is becoming much more accepted, much more officialized. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, when you talk about financial and material conditions, then uh, the conversation uh, stops. And this is why um, th th there is a problem um, uh, that uh, there is a step, a further step, that apparently uh, we have a lot of difficulty, not only in the United States, but in countries like Brazil, mm -hmm. in Latin America, I would say Colombia, Ecuador, and other places that I uh, talk about in the book. And um, it, it, this is why then the, this, um, the, the, the UN definitions, they are, um, how can I say, they, they are this sort of framework, especially for the works of uh, activists mm -hmm. or uh, lawmakers and so on. But in practice, uh, what, uh, the term reparations became so widespread and so employed that sometimes people are talking about, uh, okay, affirmative action is reparations, uh, change the name of the building is reparations. And then I say, yeah, perhaps yes, perhaps it's the case, but it's, jo it's just symbolic reparations. Right, right. Then um, I don't know if I answer at all your question, but you can continue. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> that was great. No, that's great. I mean, that actually leads to a larger discussion, right? And you know, when when we feel that, or when institutions, people in power in institutions, feel that they have done acknowledgement, then they think they've checked the box in a lot of ways. But I wonder if in your studies and in the amount of time that you spent, whether it's traveling or mm -hmm. researching, what is mm -hmm. it you found that keeps institutions or generally people in power, especially in the political realm, what is it that keeps them from the more 
I guess the riskier forms of reparation Mm -hmm. isn't as simple as self-interest in terms of financial gain or hoarding wealth or what, what are the deeper reasons for um, sort of a, a surface type, a photo op style pursuit of reparations, but nothing more. I just, I wonder what you found or what you've been able to observe. What I was able to observe, especially with this work that goes back to the 18th century and uh, through the 19th century as well, when uh, people were either illegally enslaved and were were not able to get reparations. We had some cases that I described uh, in the book when these individuals were able to get. For example, uh, we have this famous case of Solomon Northup of that um, that gave the then the, the, the twelve years a slave, wow. and that man he was a free man who was enslaved. And at the time, there were attempts uh, to pass uh, then to get to give him reparations, and it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Then there are several elements from what we can learn from the past. Is mm-hmm. first. Uh, the idea to not create a precedent that if you give reparations to one person, others you come and they will be able to get. Right. Um, second, uh, the, the the issue of the distribution of wealth, because we can see all the origins of this resistance already during the abolitionist movement. When these abolitionists, they were all talking about uh, what would uh, what would be the means to identify the planters, the slave owners, but they were not at all interested in uh, taking the measures that would help former slaves to uh, to move on and to have the resources that they needed. Mm-hmm. Then, um, then it's an issue of uh, redistribution of wealth. That once this system is stopped, the once once the slavery was ended. Uh, the elites in place, not only in the United States, but in mm-hmm. other countries, they made the possible, they made all they could first to be indemnified. Then they, uh, they, they gained resources with the end of the slavery. They were indemnified. Uh, in many cases, they kept enslaved people working for them and they, uh, they kept uh, getting profit from the work of these former slaves. Hmm. And after that, when these when these groups, for example, at the end of the 19th century here in the United States, when they organized themselves to um, to demand pensions, these groups were largely repressed. They were persecuted, and they were sent to prison. Then, at, already at that point, was already an issue of redistribution of resources. Uh, that this was the resistance, and I think that in the days that we are living. Any um, any company or any institution or any government that would take one step more, even to make a formal apology for slavery, uh, they know very well that this could lead uh, to further steps that they won't, don't want to take. Mm-hmm. Some can argue that the resources are not there uh, to pay reparations mm-hmm. in some cases, mm-hmm. but uh, this, uh, of course, uh, is questionable because we know very well that uh, there would be other forms uh, of transferring resources, of transferring wealth uh, to help those who um, who are descendants of those who were victimized during the, the period of the slavery. Mm-hmm. Mm, mm, thank you so much for that. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. So it sounds like a, in some ways there's a um, 
avoiding an admission of guilt. It's mm-hmm. like they start mm-hmm. short of really owning it because they know if you own it, then you have to actually repair um, exactly. the harm That's you know right. that is done. Um, and they know they have to pay up. And there is a precedence in this country of actually doing that. We saw that with the Jewish community, community um, with Germany, of course, um, mm-hmm. in the mix and Japanese Americans. And mm-hmm. there's so much about your book that I would love to talk about. <laughs> I know. But but what um what now on the heels of that question though I really am this is what I kept asking myself while I was reading your book I think I've written why at least five or six times um, in the margin <laughs> when okay so when it, okay so as it concerns I can understand why um say say the oppressor for for just a simplistic way of putting it would not want to pay reparations okay nobody wants to actually come out of their pocket and remedy things right mm-hmm. um a, apart from you know an awakening through the spirit and all that stuff but. Why, though, did organizations like the NAACP, the African Union, um, Black mm-hmm. elites, so I'm thinking here even of a, a former President Obama who actually opposed reparations. Why? Mm. <laughs> like, why? Yeah. Why, did these or- why did these organizations, maybe, and, and maybe I should say, not necessarily opposed. Let me say, I'm sure they were, they're fine with symbolic, right? But why, mm-hmm. why, why, why did these groups not push forward for financial or material reparations. So maybe opposing is strong. I know Obama does actually oppose it though. Um, but yeah, what, what is it? Is there a class thing going on? Like, do, do you know why? Any thoughts on that? Um, how can I say? I, 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 I probably uh, don't have all the dimensions, but uh, we all have clues about it. For example, okay. when you are talking about the African Union, yeah. um, then it's it's much more uh, it's an agenda that is complicated because mm. of course that even in Africa we have African elites mm-hmm. uh, and depending on the the political context uh, this mm. can be perhaps is not all at, at the period that we're talking about now perhaps is not uh, a good uh, let's say venue because this perhaps can interrupt dialogues and other forms of uh, support that these groups are uh, and these countries are attempting to to get but yeah. it's an issue um, uh, it's an issue that you have to touch this issue uh, the, the question of how wealth is concentrated and uh, I don't think that Obama, um, effectively fought to um, how can I say to to redistribute wealth uh, in this country? I don't think that uh, in many cases African elites, uh, uh, people who are ruling African countries, in many cases they uh, we don't even have uh, regimes that uh, individuals and uh, the population can have a voice. But this said, I would say that I don't think that is much important that one individual like uh, a president or uh, that these individuals, they defend reparations. Sure. What is more important is to have uh, um, organizations, grassroots organizations that um, engage in this conversation. And this is also a problem that we have because, uh, of course, that now there is a revival of this of this conversation around reparations. But it's still, there is a lot, uh, a lot of divisions, a lot of different groups that do not necessarily um, uh, are in agreement. But this perhaps is changing when we're talking about uh, 
Yeah. Uh, the movements for black lives, uh, adding this at the end of the book that I talk also about UN and so on. Then there is something that apparently is changing with CARICOM as well, that is bringing the issue of reparations to the table, even though it's still a lot of the elements that they bring are, are symbolic. But mm -hmm. I don't believe that mm -hmm. reparations will be a gift that will be given by one president or by sure. uh, one party or one government. Uh, it's the same like the abolition of the slavery. This must come from, from, from the base, from the population, from the groups that are organized. And this the, is there that the challenge um, uh, is uh, lies, let's say. Yeah. Wow. That's so helpful, actually, because <laughs> I think sometimes when you, uh, you know, for us people on the margins, we think, oh, this stuff has to come from the top or else how will it happen? But it's nice to know that, oh, our little podcast actually might actually be making a difference. <laughs> of course. So, so that's actually really helpful and very encouraging for us. Uh, and while we're on the subject um, of just the global aspect, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, I know that uh, in your book, uh, they you talked about how appeals for reparations, they begin began as early as the 19th century. Now, obviously, they weren't saying reparations in the 19th uh -huh. century. There was different, you know, um, mm -hmm. nomenclature that was used. Mm -hmm. uh, but can you speak to the ways in which the appeals for reparations in, say, Cuba, Brazil, um, and Colombia differed um, from those of the U.S. and maybe why that was? Uh, it, it's a long story in the sense that, uh, first, if you take Cuba and Brazil, these are countries that were uh, the last countries to abolish slavery in the Americas. And these are two very large slave societies along with the United States. Uh, the problem in these societies of Latin America, either Cuba, Colombia, or Brazil, is that we never had in these societies legal segregation as we had in the United States. Then uh, all the issue of uh, racial relations in this uh, in these countries played uh, a role that made much more difficult to face the fact that populations of African descent were living and are still living today in a situation of exclusion. These are yeah. uh, what we call um, uh, in Brazil uh, an ideology of racial democracy, and in the Latin, Latin American general. Uh, in general, we talk about uh, this ideology of mestizaje, this idea that we are all mixed at the end of the day, that everybody has, to some extent, some kind of African blood. And yeah. uh, because of that, there is no racism in the societies, which, of course, uh, is a lie. Uh, then the, these uh, societies like Brazil are societies that uh, we never had legal segregation, but the, there is segregation, in fact. And we have all the numbers to, to, to demonstrate that. And the numbers are much, uh, much, much worse than yeah. what we can see in the United States. Then the problem in these countries is that this, uh, this configuration of these slave societies where blacks and whites uh, were much more in interaction, where people, um, then where slaves had access to manumission, either usually pur purchasing their, uh, their freedom. This created uh, then a society that was much more, uh, more, more mixed and was an obstacle to the recognition that racism is an important component in these places. And another uh, element that we should not forget, and it's an element that uh, I also talk about in the book, is that, of course, after 1945, 
there is the Cold War that starts, and this affected uh, uh, greatly countries like Brazil and other Latin American countries, where then we had uh, then during the period of the Cold War um, dictatorships, military dictatorships. In the case of Brazil, a military dictatorship, uh, a military coup in 1964 that was indeed supported by the, 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 the United States. And then mm -hmm. when you here in the United States were having this big, beautiful movement, uh, uh, the civil, right, uh, civil rights movement, in Brazil, we were living under a military dictatorship. This military dictatorship that lasted about 20 years delayed much uh, the, the, the Black Brazilian movement. Uh, then it was only in the 1990s when these demands of reparations became uh, became more visible. Uh, that uh, be that you are going to have organized groups uh, demanding um, reparations, but in most part of the cases, the fight was still for symbolic reparations, and the center of much of this fight was uh, affirmative action. And also, mm. uh, however, there is another element, another dimension in the, 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 the two cases that uh, you were talking about, uh, Colombia, uh, the case of Brazil yeah. as well, of these Quilombo communities. These communities are remnants of uh, runaway slaves mm. uh, that were extended. And then we have the, uh, the hundreds of these communities in Brazil that are fighting for the, the, the ownership of land. This could be then some kind of... Uh, um, of uh, form of uh, of material reparations then mm. but this arrives much later much later than in the united states when the united states has already one century of uh, a history of for of of fight for reparations this uh, arrived much later than uh, in the case of brazil Mm, I see. And, mm. and in those those Colombo communities, they they had they struggled. They're still even struggling to obtain the titles, mm. right? For that exactly. land. Is that, is that correct? Okay. Exactly. Because the, the, in mm. Brazil, especially since 2002, with a, a government that um, took office in Brazil, the government of the Workers' Party, there was really an expansion of these programs to recognize these communities of remnants of Quilombos. But um, many of them, they were recognized and they get, uh, they get some benefits uh, of being recognized. But very mm. few of them, they have the titles of the land. Then, which mm. means that uh, in a number of years, if they don't get the titles, uh, there are armed groups, there are uh, large landowners who uh, are constantly threatening them. For example, some of them, they are placed in uh, urban areas. Uh, urban areas sometimes uh, where uh, the, the land is very expensive and uh, real estate uh, interests and so on, then they, they are always trying to, to, to kick out these communities from where they are. Then it's a, mm. a fight that doesn't stop, even if they are recognized. Mm. I see. Yeah, there. The, this global dimension, I love the multinational, like the transnational work, mm -hmm. um, especially that a lot of people haven't thought about or we've read so little about it. I feel that there's a lot of the expansion of the diaspora before mm -hmm. us, but also automatically we as 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 an African American woman who only knows so much of her own mm -hmm. motherland, mm -hmm. I have to explain my definition of blackness um, mm -hmm. in the face of the particular types of liberation and freedom that mm -hmm. have been 
taken from me. And therefore, those particular types that I must chase, I must demand, you know, obviously. So Mm -hmm. I think that, um, yeah, this work is truly multidimensional. I've also been thinking about Haitian Independence Day and the other nations. January 1st. Yes, that's right. I mean, there's specific nations uh, in the Caribbean, right, that that we are looking at that we know um, have had to fight for certain things, even while the United States itself was complicit in their mm-hmm. history. So I'm interested to hear how how you would speak to the indemnities that Haiti was forced to pay mm-hmm. to France, um, as well as any insight on the complicity of the United States in that history. I mean, especially considering the one-dimensional understanding that most people have about how Haiti gained her independence in the first place. I mean, there's a lot of supremacist agenda that Mm -hmm. overshadows the valor and triumph of that really important history. Of course, uh, Haiti then, then as you were saying, then Haiti is the first uh, country uh, to first became independent after the United States from France and at the same time, it was the, the first country to abolish uh, slavery through uh, a slave, uh, through a slave uh, rebellion. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the issue is uh, that um, it, it could be then a case, and this uh, I commented this in the book, that the case of uh, Saint-Domingue then be, that became 80 uh, could be a case uh, where uh, then former slaves... Uh, mm-hmm. They became kings, they became rulers, they became presidents, they became ministers, they uh, ruled the country, the, which was not at all the case of what happened to former slaves in other countries after abolishing the slavery in the Americas. But the problem was that the nation itself uh, that was now uh, independent had to pay 150 million francs to, to France uh, in 1825 in order to have its independence recognized by France. Because France mm-hmm. then uh, acted with other uh, European nations and with the United States that didn't recognize uh, AT uh, until much later. Right. And um, this, of course, uh, prevented AD to, to progress, but of course, AD uh, ended up accepting, despite a lot of resistance that existed in the beginning, uh, accepted to pay this, uh, mm-hmm. this amount of money. Uh, it, it had to pay for several, for several years. And of course, mm-hmm. when you are referring today, especially to the issue of um, uh, these uh, indemnifications, um, mm-hmm. we know that AD is, uh, reclaims this money. The reclaims right. uh, that that uh, that yeah. France gives this money back, but one interesting th- element that you bring uh, when you you commented is that AT uh, is not making these claims, for example, because of course uh, the United States didn't get this money, mm-hmm. but there is a, uh, there is an entire network of banks and mm. uh, institutions that benefited from. Uh, from these payments, wow. which of, right. I, I, I didn't I didn't follow this, but there there are other uh, uh, scholars who are doing research, and I hope that there will be more research done on that. 
And it's interesting also because CARICOM, the, the uh, Caribbean community that uh, is asking now, has yeah. a 10-point plan asking reparation, yeah. uh, asking reparations. And uh, they uh, these uh, reparations demands are being addressed to France, to Portugal, mm -hmm. to Britain. But there is nothing that is being asked, uh, of course, to the United States because the United States was not uh, the metropole. But hmm. at the same thing, if you were talking then about colonialism, uh, right. um, about imperialism, then the United States was present and we didn't arrive at that stage. Then we are still following the money as the money went to France. Uh, and this, of course, caused Haiti to stay uh, behind. Among other mm -hmm. things, of course, I'm not saying that this is the only cause. Uh, the fact that the United States... Uh, invaded the island uh, a number of times and uh, intervened yeah. there also had yeah. an enormous yeah. impact. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, thank you so yeah. much. And I, 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 I'm, thank you for touching even about, you know, um, America's hand in the colonization and imperialism because mm -hmm. um, that's very important um, in even the ways that it's, it's doing that now across the globe, right? Um, it, it did also have a hand in what's happening currently in the Libyan slave trade as well um, and that there's a lot of complicity there. Um, and so um, while, I, while I was reading your book, um, Anna, I was wondering to myself about even the case of reparations Mm -hmm. as it concerns colonialism. You know, uh, this is, colonialism is, can be a little nebulous, I think, mm -hmm. for us sometimes uh, in our context because we're oftentimes talking about chattel slavery mm -hmm. um, because that's something that that obviously impacts our community here, whether whether you're a first-gen immigrant like me mm -hmm. um, or if you're a descendant, right, um, mm -hmm. of enslaved people. And so can you talk about the case of, of reparations? Uh, obviously, that's a whole book in and of itself <laughs> uh, <laughs> with regard to colonization. In Africa, particularly West Africa, right, mm -hmm. where where the enslaved people were obviously captured and trafficked. Um, my relatives, your descendants. Um, so, if you could talk about what that looks like and on that landscape, because it just seems like there is a reluctance. And you talked about this earlier from African nations to actually go all the way, right, to push because there's complicated relationships because of col colonization. So if you could talk about that a bit um, and maybe unpack that for our listeners so they can get a little bit more of a handle on that, that would be helpful. Yes, uh, let's say that um, it, 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 the, the book shows a little bit about how the, the, the discourses of emancipation that emerged, especially uh, after the end of the Second World War, then when yeah. uh, African nations are... Um, in this fight for liberation, there was always a connection that is made between slavery, slavery and colonialism. In other words, what you, uh, yeah. these social actors they are saying is that uh, through the slave trade, the Europeans, they put their feet in Africa uh, in a first moment. And this led to their presence uh, and to the scramble uh, for Africa and uh, colonialism. And they are right in saying that it's perhaps the, the, the relation is not so direct, but in many cases it is. One example that it, let's move out from uh, West Africa, but go to West Central Africa where the Portuguese they were. Uh, the Portuguese had, uh, they were in the interior of the continent uh, in that area that, where it is present day Angola. And that was almost the, was the last uh, uh, country to become independent from, from Portugal. 
And of course, that in this in these countries there is a clear relation for the populations who lived uh, there at the time that uh, the, the the regimes of labor that these European nations they imposed on the local populations were very similar to slavery. They were not slavery, but they were forced labor. They were not mm-hmm. selling people and transporting them across the ocean, but it's still right. uh, they were being uh, they were beaten. They were um, then they, they were not being uh, correctly uh, paid. Uh, they had to work uh, it, it, then very long hours and so on. Then for them that was slavery. They perceived mm. that as a slavery, even if it was not an institution that existed before. Uh, and sure. there, there, are, there is also also the the issue of the resources that were taken from from Africa during the the, the colonialism. Then the the, the Atlantic slave trade uh, took from the continent uh, its um, its youth, uh, then its young mm. black men mostly. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, after with colonialism, we are imposing these regimes of labor, and you are taking the resources, uh, the natural mm-hmm. resources, and for these. Uh, this is what African nations, they started and making this connection. And this is especially then during the period of liberation then that it started after the, the end of the, um, the Second World War and becomes mm-hmm. uh, visible then with the independences uh, through the 1960s. Then this is, um, and, and there, there, was, uh, there were movements that emerged again in the 1990s. These demands became again uh, very visible. Uh, but it's sometimes complicated to um, to make a connection uh, in, between the two things because, of course, what African nations they are yeah. asking is reparations for the slave trade, then for the 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 resources that were taken from them during the Atlantic slave trade, and after the resources that were taken from them during the um, during the period of colonialism. But this expands a lot in terms of time frame and complicates the the conversation about reparations. Mm, yeah, even yeah, and even hinders even their the, the ask for it now, exactly. right? Because now now they're how can you say? Uh, now it's almost in some ways they're beholden, right, to these nations that actually colonize them because like, well, we're getting aid from these guys, so we can't exactly ask them. You know, so yes. it's just so complicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And the, the, the issue of the African elites, that sometimes is a touchy topic yeah. that uh, some people, they uh, are not uh, pleased to, to listen. But of course, I think that one element that we should take into consideration in all this discussion of reparations is not mm. only the, the, the question of race or uh, African ancestry, but also the issue of Class. And of course, that yes. in these countries, uh, there were people. Uh, there were people who benefited from. Uh, I'm not saying that it's a it's a minority, but there were people who benefited. For example, uh, in the, the the country that is that I studied more closely, that is Republic of Benin, uh, the kings yes. mm-hmm. the kings of Dahomey, they uh, waged wars against their enemies to get captives, yes. and th- th- their descendants are still there in Benin. Uh, some mm-hmm. of these people, they still have important social positions. Then uh, the discussion in Africa, even among uh, intellectuals, activists there in Benin at the time in the 1990s, they would mm-hmm. question this idea because they say, okay, then there will be reparations. But what is going to happen? The descendant of the king is going to get this money as well. Right, right, um, right. Then who is mm. going to control this this money uh, once it, it comes? 
then these are questions that uh, that complicate the African case. But this that there is nothing to do with what we're talking about in the Americas, because right, the Americas right. people of African descent essentially. Uh, they were people who uh, were forced. They were brought by force. The, the, then the, the ancestors of those of African Americans. Then first, not, no, I'm not talking about uh, African diaspora, but African Americans. Then those yes. who have been here for for several generations. Their ancestors. They were brought here uh, by mm-hmm. force. Then they are not yeah. at all concerned with. Uh, this all this debate in Africa about the elites that remained there uh, and perhaps uh, participated in the in the trade. That's such a good point, and that's why it's so important for us to make sure that we're not importing, you know, our um, how can we say our paradigms onto different contexts, right? Because if we have an expansive view of blackness, then we know that there's different factors mm-hmm. in place. So in Africa. We're not talking about race per se. We're talking about elitism or actually classism. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about tribalism mm-hmm. and all that comes along with that. And then obviously in the American context, we are talking about race. Exactly. Right? So, exactly. yeah. And we are talking about African-Americans specifically with regard to representation in this context. So I'm so glad that you actually broke um, broke that down for us. So, so that we're not, you know, because I think there is a tendency for both, you know, camps to kind of import each other's context onto uh-huh. one another, but it, we, we, we enter into our histories at different points, exactly. right? Um, yeah. And so, uh, so yeah, so thank you for breaking that down. And so, so for our uh, final question, question kind of bringing us back to a bit more of our context, I was fascinated mm-hmm. um, by the, uh, the story about uh, James Foreman, who was the former executive director of the student nonviolent coordinating committee known as SNCC. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was also a former uh, Black Panther. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his demand for reparations from the church um, and from Jewish people. I thought that was a little, I was a little confused by that. <laughs> so if you could explain that, because I was like, wait a minute, did they, they didn't have a hand in it, did they? Oh my gosh, I don't know. And so um, and, and I wanted to know though, in our contest, you know, here at this table, true uh-huh. table, we are, out, you know, we, we, we're, we're all anti-racist mm-hmm. and we are big on justice. This is, a, uh-huh. this is what we do. Yes. Um, and so, and, and, all, and we definitely believe in the importance of um, calling the church to account as well as lovers of the church, mm-hmm. right? Um, we need to mm-hmm. speak truth. And so I was fascinated by um, Foreman's story in your book because I was like, wait a minute, somebody actually... <laughs> you know, actually demanded reparations from the church. This is fascinating. Number one, number two, it needs to happen. I'm sorry. <laughs> and so, if you could talk about that, I was wondering if, um, if you could talk about uh, James, his, his approach, and and so our listeners can know. And I wanted to know: are, have there been recent appeals of this this nature um, since Foreman? Uh, so yeah, can you talk about James Foreman mm-hmm. and what that was all about? <laughs> yes, uh, um, it's it's hard to see how. He, um, it's it's not very clear from from uh, from the research uh, that I did how he made the decision of targeting the the churches and the synagogues. Okay. But uh, one element that I saw, because you know that, and this I am calling here for all the those who are uh, listening to this uh, podcast and perhaps who want to do research that James mm. Foreman's papers are all uh, here in the, the Library of Congress um, okay. here in Washington, D.C. Now, uh, what I had the impression is that he studied these, the, the previous demands uh, of reparations. 
He knew, for example, in his archives, in his papers, we can find uh, those um, uh, the copies of documents from the National Archives here about the pensions movement that took place here uh, at the end, started at the end of the 19th century. Then I, at that point, I, uh, from what I understand, he um, knew that perhaps it would not be a possible, um, how can I say, a feasible alternative to demand the government. And this, we are in the period of the, the Cold War and uh, these individuals like him and others, they were uh, surveyed by FBI and so on. Sure. But mm-hmm. um, then it was not possible to ask to the, 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 tent- the attempts to ask the, the government to pay reparations didn't work. Uh, uh, attempts pr- to, to ask particular uh, institutions didn't work, former masters, for example, then why not uh, target these institutions? There, there were the, the churches who benefited from the slavery, who owned slaves, who supported the slave trade. And I am referring, for example, here to the Episcopalians and so on. Uh, okay. At that time, of course, there was this idea as well that uh, the, the the Jewish also benefited from that. But of course, that also there is also here a connection between slavery and uh, Jim Crow. That he all, that there is also a connection that is made in the documents that these churches they benefited not only from uh, from they benefited from the work of Af- uh, of African Americans not only during the period of the of slavery, but during Jim Crow, they supported segregation. They were uh, accomplices of these, um, of these uh, uh, atrocities that were committed at, at that time. Then this is why he decides to target. But the other reason why he decides to target is that he knew that there was money there. And, uh, and uh, in the correspondence, in the correspondence, there is one activist who who knew about his demands, and she uh, sends him a letter saying, "Look, and I we can retrace all the money that they have because this was uh, uh, then to that these institutions they would not be able to say no, we don't have the money to pay. Some of them they right. they responded uh, to the to his demands." But um, but at the end of the day, the, the, the amount that he was able to, to get and all the, the plan uh, to, to mm. use this money didn't, didn't work. But what I found interesting, because you were saying, you were talking about the church. For you, the church uh, is, uh, you were talking about the Protestantism. But what is interesting in my case as being a Brazilian and about all the Americas, Indeed, it's the Catholic Church that is mm-hmm. the largest slave owner mm-hmm. in the Americas. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is interesting because he doesn't mention the Catholic Church. In his, of course, he's in the United States. The Catholic Church doesn't yeah. have that, uh, that presence. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, I am just led to think about. Um, uh, I am just led to think about the the Jesuits, for example, and all this discussion that we are having yes. now at Georgetown and so on. Mm-hmm. And this was very common in Brazil and in Argentina, uh, in all Latin America. The Catholic Church they own the slaves; they benefit from from the slavery, and there was nothing elsewhere. 
that was done to ask the Catholic Church to to pay for uh, to pay reparations. Then uh, James Foreman, in this way, he was uh, it was perhaps one of the most original uh, approaches to to the issue of uh, reparations. Even though it, it it was not, of course, it was not uh, it was not successful because all these collective mo- movements that we are talking about, none of them they 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 were successful up, up to here at least. Mm. Okay. Yeah, no, that's that's really good and really helpful. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting when you mentioned the Catholic Church. I was like, yeah, actually, you're right. <laughs> so yes, I, was, right. I was thinking about that history and then but you know the Protestants they had their hands too. Come on. <laughs> but there is but there is also some recognition, for example, the the Epicus, uh, ep, uh, the Epics is Epics Episcopalians, they um, yes. they, they they are making uh, then there are there is a process now. Of course, these are more than uh, than thirty years after James Foreman did. Sure. Then there are these demands uh, that these um, acknowledgments that they are uh, making, for example, uh, of their participation and their uh, complicity with uh, slavery and so on. Apologies. Mm-hmm. But there is, of sure. course, not no money that is being offered because we're not, okay. <laughs> no nobody offers money unless someone asks. Then uh, well. there is no there is no movement at these days asking the yeah. church to to pay reparations. Who knows? Perhaps it's going to emerge at some point. Who knows? You know, TT will come from. <laughs> no, we we are, you know, we we're all about that. <laughs> but calling people to account, you know, no, but it's, it, I mean, church it's so, I mean, my money. Yes. <laughs> Oh, okay. now, now there's all this. I mean, I don't know if you're aware, but there's all these talks about racial reconciliation and all this. And That's I'm right. often talking about if you want to reconcile, you need to repair. Exactly. And part of that is actually doing some reparations uh-huh. beyond just symbolic now. So, anyways, we will talk about that in the series. Reconciliation just let's forget what happened. I don't think that is, no. uh, th- there must be more than uh, recognition and uh, some kind of. Repair, exactly. even if it's symbolic, but uh, not that I am defending symbolic reparations, but I don't think that right. is the case. Uh, there is nothing that significant that is being done uh, in that direction. Mm. Not, not at all. Yes. Exactly. And so, and we know present is a present, history is a present reality that we all currently live. I mean, we That's all, right. it, it, wherever we enter into this history, we have the scars, you know, we have the receipts, if you will, <laughs> you know, and so we all, we all live. I mean, really we do. I mean, uh, from the continent, there's, there's stories with my family. Mm-hmm. Michelle has stories, is living it. You have stories. Right. So anyways, and all that to say, cause I can keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I want to th- we want to thank you first of all for coming to the table yes. and this is your opportunity please talk to our listeners about what projects you're working on Absolutely. how our listeners can find you learn more about your work get your amazing book um so yeah this is your time just to share what you've got going on with our listeners i'm sure they would want to follow you and learn more from you. okay then let me let me let me tell you that what i am doing now is still i am working on a on a book that is a it's going to okay. be a short book uh, more intended to uh, to undergraduate students especially and perhaps the general public discussing all these issues of uh uh, memory of slavery and wh- which forms this um, this memory of his slavery 
history takes if there if it is to monuments to memorials to museums okay. uh, the discussion uh, the, the current debates also regarding the, the confederate flag and confederate monuments then this is going to be a, a book that is more intended to undergraduate students and uh, i have in mind a project to work on this issue of uh, 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 slavery and the, the Catholic Church. These are future projects. But at this point, of course, the book, this book, Reparations for Slavery, it was just published in November. Then I am still promoting the book and giving talks. Uh, okay. I gave a lot yeah. of talks, uh, especially in Europe. I gave some talks here in the US and in this mm. spring I will be talking about the book around. Then you can find the book. The title of the book is Reparations for Slavery and the Slave Trade, a Transnational and Comparative History. Yes. It is yeah. available uh, on Amazon. Then there is its own Kindle, uh, paperback, uh, uh, hardback is more for libraries. But if you want to recommend your library to, to buy, this will be great. If you want to invite mm. me to give a talk, uh, then the, my website, uh, if you Google my name, you are going to find my website. You can follow me also on Twitter. Twitter, I keep a hashtag that is called the Slavery Archive. And uh, I use like all news related to issues uh, associated with slavery, then all these debates on uh, monuments, uh, initiatives to memorialize slavery, then this is what I do essentially on Twitter, on, on Facebook as well. Then you are invited to follow me to, to buy the book. Uh, if you know people who would be interested uh, about the book as well, feel free to, to recommend it. And I hope yeah. that you are, especially I hope that you are going to read it and I hope that you can learn things uh, about how long this history of reparations uh, it is and how this is a history that is not only about the United States. It's a history that concerns uh, all the Americas and uh, all populations of African descent uh, in the Americas. And uh, it's important to understand that this history as being a shared history. Uh, a shared history of uh, human atrocities that uh, whose legacies are still so present. And I think that it's important for us to understand this as not only a problem that is a national problem, but that is something that goes much beyond the, the, the borders of the, the United States. So much, so much deeper. Thank you so much, Anna, for breaking Thank it you. All Thank you for down. you. Thank you for oh you goodness. for inviting me. Thank you for reading my work. It's really it of means course. much to me that uh, that you read because you know that uh, the work that we do as historians, as uh, researchers, it's a solitary work. We are alone mm -hmm. doing that. Yeah. Uh, we never yeah. know how if there will be someone <laughs> who will be yeah, reading right. us. Uh, I know. <laughs> I'm like, hey, we feel that. I'm an activist. I feel that way a lot. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, no, it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. But then uh, I am so yeah. glad that uh, that you read, and I hope that you enjoyed it. <laughs> but um, it thank you for inviting me. No, thank you so yeah, much, really Anna. We are it. we are so honored that you came and um, had a seat at the table with us. And we want to thank our listeners yes. for having a seat at the table with us this week. I hope you all learn more about reparations. And please, let's keep the conversation going. Tell us 
your thoughts about reparations now in our interview with uh, Dr. Arujo. We were so blessed to have her. Mm-hmm. Um, tweet us, obviously, using the hashtag TruthTable. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TruthTable or email us your thoughts, as you guys always do, um, at asktruthstable at gmail.com. Now, don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes and subscribe on the Satchel Podcast Player. Our producer for this episode is Joshua Heath, and our executive producer is Bo York. Special thanks to The Witness, Black, a Black Christian collective, and Pottery Studios. We have been your hosts, Ekemeni, Michelle, and Christina. We'll see you soon on the next Truth Table. Bye, y'all.